Every four years, sometime around the fall, in our country, we vote to elect a new president. And then eventually, once January the following year rolls around, we have this big event. The one I remember most was, uh, that had the most people was on January 20th in 2009. Barack Obama was inaugurated to be president of the United States. And 1.8 million people filled out the mall and the streets in D.C. It was incredible. But we do this every year as a way of recognizing that on that day, at that time, the new president is going to begin doing the work of the president. And in our text this morning, Leviticus chapter 9, we have an inauguration ceremony of sorts. The priests have been ordained and installed, and now the work begins. We have in Leviticus chapter 9 the first worship ceremony in Israel at the temple. The sacrificial system, it's been building towards this. The installation of the high priest, it's been building to this. And now the people will worship the Lord their God. Our main idea is this. God's people gather to worship God according to God's word so that they can receive God's blessing and see God's glory. And instead of having an exhortation, I have exhortations for you this morning. We're going to encourage you to prepare for worship, gather for worship, worship according to God's word. Remember that we are able to worship God only through Jesus and expect when you come to worship to see God's glory. I've given you an easier outline to follow. It's in three sentences and three parts. First, we see in this section that God's people prepare for corporate worship. Then we see that God's priests make atonement for their sins and the sins of the people. And then lastly, we see God's people receive God's blessing and see his glory together. Let's pray and we will begin. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning to listen to your word. Pray that it would go down deep into us, become part of us. Indeed, it would nourish us and change us. Jesus said that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Father, we pray this morning that we would make ourselves as Ezekiel, whom you commanded to eat the scroll. We recall that he ate the scroll and said that it was as honey on his tongue. We pray that, that we would eat your word this morning. That we would taste and see that you are good. Lord, we ask that you would enlarge our hearts this morning. And that you would fill us with holy affections for Christ our Lord and for one another. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 9 here in Leviticus. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. He said to Aaron, Take a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and present them before the Lord. 
And tell the Israelites, take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, male yearlings without blemish for a burnt offering, an ox and a ram for a fellowship offering to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. Because today, the Lord is going to appear to you. They brought what Moses had commanded to the front of the tent of meeting. And the whole community came forward and stood before the Lord. And so it's been a week-long process where they have been ordaining and installing Aaron and his sons towards the priesthood. And every day they went through that process of making sacrifices and, and they had stayed before the Lord Aaron and his sons had for a whole week. And now on the eighth day, Moses gives them instructions. He says, we've gone through the ordination process and now it's time to get to work. Now it's time for us to go and worship the Lord together. And we are going to worship the Lord through his sacrificial system and through you, his priests. This is the way we're going to come into God's presence and it is striking here that even after this process of a week-long installation or ordination of Aaron and his sons, they've been offering sacrifice after sacrifice, still Aaron must offer sacrifices for himself and his sons as they get ready to go into the Lord's presence. Still these priests are sinners who need their sins forgiven. So they will offer sacrifices on their behalf and on behalf of the people. And in obedience to the word of the Lord, in obedience to the command of Moses, they get all this stuff together and get ready to worship. They assemble together before the tent of meeting. The tent functioned kind of like a palace in Leviticus. There's this kingship imagery that that pervades throughout where God is, is the king of Israel. And the the tabernacle or the tent kind of serves as his palace. And you notice that God's servants, his priests, they will wear these royal garments, which are patterned after the palace. We looked at some of the priest's garments last week, right? And they match the tabernacle. They're kind of like mini tabernacles walking around among the people. And the tabernacle itself is supposed to kind of be a, a miniature version of Mount Sinai. Do you remember when Israel is brought out of slavery in Egypt and made God's holy people? The reason that Pharaoh is to let his people go is let my people go so that they can worship me. And so they eventually come out and they come to Sinai and that's where they receive the word of the Lord and that's where they worship God. And then the tabernacle is patterned after that. At the top of the mountain where Moses met with God and only Moses, that's kind of like the holy of holies in the tabernacle, right? And the holy place kind of represents the the edges of the mountain. And then the outer courtyard where all the people were gathered outside of the Lord's presence. So you've kind of got this, this miniature Sinai in the tabernacle. This is where God is going to localize and manifest his presence. This is where the people come to meet with God. And he's he's their king, and he is dwelling with them, his royal subjects, his people. When Israel sets up camp, the tabernacle's at the center, and then all the tribes assemble around the tabernacle. And his tent is fancy. It's got got fancy threads in it. It's got golden tables. And it's meant to show that this is a place that's worthy of a king. This is the king's house. 
And so the people are coming to pay homage to their king, to worship their king and God. You don't just, you don't just strut up to a king's palace. Right? It's similar to if, not to beat an analogy to death, but it's if you would have a president of the United States call you this afternoon and say, I'm going to come to your house, right? You probably wouldn't just shrug your shoulders, you know, and there's things all over the floor and dishes in the sink. You're probably going to go, oh, I've got to get ready. I've got to prepare. You know, I've got to run the vacuum and, and get my dishes clean and make this place as nice as it can possibly be because somebody of great importance is coming to see me. It's a similar situation here. They're going before the Lord, and Moses says, Today the Lord is going to appear to you. And they think, We have got to get ready. They're preparing. They're going to get together all these sacrifices, all the things that are required for them to interact and have relationship with God. It reminds me of in, in Lord of the Rings, uh, Boromir. They're talking about going to Mordor with the ring. If you don't know Lord of the Rings, just you can check out for this section. But, but they're talking about going to Mordor to destroy the, the ring. And, and Boromir says, famously, one does not simply walk into Mordor. He says its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep, and the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland, riddled with fire and ash and dust, the very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. And his point there is that it's really, really dangerous to try to just walk into Mordor where all this power is. In a similar way, it is very dangerous for us to think that we can just approach the infinitely majestic and holy God casually and carelessly. His people understood this. Right there, bells on the hem of the high priest's robe so that if he somehow doesn't get himself all the way ritually pure in obedience to God's word and he goes before the Lord and dies where no one can see him, they can hear him and drag him out. God is not to be trifled with or approached casually. His holiness devours sinfulness like the sun devours darkness. His holiness breaks forth against evil with justice. So God's holiness is his response to justice. His, wrath, or his, his holiness is his response to evil. His wrath is his response to that which is sinful. You can't just go into God's presence. And so in Leviticus, we've said we've got a holy God and we've got a sinful people. How, how can they dwell together? How can this holy God dwell with this sinful people? And the answer is through the sacrificial system and the priests. And so, so the whole book has been leading us to this point where Israel was going to be able to worship the Lord their God and dwell with him in peace. We've been being prepared for this. Since they were in slavery, they were being prepared to worship God as he dwelt in their midst. And this has been a long way coming. It took a long time to build the tabernacle and to put the stuff together. And then they had to explain how all these sacrifices worked. 
And they had to go through this ordination process. And now today is the day. They're going to worship God. He's going to appear to them in the same way that he appeared on Sinai, cloud and fire and smoke. Same way he, he led them out of Egypt. Pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. God is going to, to show up. He's going to make his glory manifest. When we talk of God's glory, we, we, the word literally means weight, right? just refers to his significance, his value, his, his, his beauty, and his infinite worth. When we see here, when he says, I'm going to appear to you, and later in, in verse 6, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you, and then again, uh, towards the end of the chapter, verse 23, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. But when his glory appears, that's just God is making his presence visible. Making his presence visible to people. They're, they're going to see God in some ways. They're going to see his, his presence in a visible way. And so they prepare to come before God. And I don't think you can read these first few verses and think about the preparations that are being made and not ask yourself the question, how do I prepare for worship? How do we prepare to go before a holy God and worship him? I mean, do we prepare at all? Maybe you prepare by uh, staying up as late as you possibly can on Saturday night, into the wee hours of the morning, you know, 2, 3 a.m., binge-watching Netflix, and then, then you, you wake up at the last second and, and jump in, in the shower and, and make your way here you know, as soon as you can, which happens to be like five minutes late. Maybe you prepare that way. I used to prepare that way. Sometimes I still feel like I prepare that way. But how ought we prepare to come before the Lord? I think there are many things we could do I'm going to just walk through a casual week is that after you, you leave the service, um, thinking about what we sang here and prayed here and proclaimed here. Thinking about the sermon. Meditating on it. Praying about it. And then praying for the next week's sermon. And praying for one another and some of these concerns that we've raised. You can read your Bible. You can just very practically, commit to coming. And commit to doing simple things like on Saturday night, uh, sleeping at a decent, decent hour. I've heard, heard it said many times that Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision. And we meet at 11, so it shouldn't be that hard, even if you stay up really late. But you're making sure you have adequate sleep, that, that your heart is not in a place where you've been consuming all of these worldly things and then you show up on Sunday morning and you wonder why for that hour there isn't this interaction with God. Maybe it's because you're not ready to receive it. You've been concerning yourself with so many other things, not giving God a single thought throughout the week. Friends, prepare yourselves for worship. Prepare yourselves for this public gathering by offering God private worship and private devotion every day during the week. Friends, prepare for this time together. Think about the Lord's day every day. Israel prepares themselves to go before the Lord. And they gather together to do it and they listen 
to what Moses says now that they've come before him in verse 6. Moses said, This is what the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Approach the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering. Make atonement for yourself and for the people. Sacrifice the people's offering and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. One of the really interesting things as Aaron makes atonement for himself, if you go back to the first few verses there, he's to offer a bull. And actually in the Hebrew, that word is bull calf. You might have young bull or something there. You can't help but have your your memory jogged once more back to Exodus 32 when the people are wanting to worship an idol and Aaron fashions for them that golden calf. This is maybe this really neat thing a lot of commentators point out where God is kind of saying, I want you to sacrifice a young bull, just like the one you you crafted when you led the people into idolatry. And I want you to sacrifice it. It's almost as if God is saying, Aaron, you are not your sin. I know what you've done in your past, but you come to me in faith and your sin will no longer define you. It no longer defines you. you. You aren't your sin, Aaron. That, along with all your other sin, is forgiven. You're not your sin. You're mine. You're my high priest. I can't help but hear the, the echoes of the gospel in that. That when we turn from our sin and come to Christ, this is what he says to us. He says, my precious child, you are not your sin. You are mine. And you are useful to me. Wonderful picture. We'll notice that Aaron's going to prepare to offer all these sacrifices and to perform these rituals as the Lord commanded. This whole worship service in Leviticus 9 is centered around doing what God's word says. Likewise, we try to construct our worship services around what God's word says to do. I don't want to compel you to worship God in a way that, that isn't prescribed by his word. If you ever wondered why we do certain things in church? Well, we, we do them because they're prescribed in the Bible. And so, so we sing because God's word tells us to sing. I don't know if you know this, that's a pretty weird thing to do. And, and even in, among like worshipers and, and uh, different religions, singing is, is, is odd. But we do it because God's word tells us to. In fact, the command to sing is the most frequent command in all the Bible. Did you know that? I didn't. I learned it this week. It's incredible. We, we sing because we're commanded to sing. We pray because we're commanded to pray. We give because we're commanded to give as an expression of our worship to God. We confess our sins because we're commanded to confess our sins. We encourage one another because this is what the body of Christ does. We've been given gifts so that we can encourage one another on towards good deeds and love. We, we partake of the Lord's Supper because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We preach the word and listen to the word preached because we believe that God's words are the words of life. And so we always want to worship God according to his word. And this is what the Israelites do. They're going to worship God according to his word. And they've gathered together to that end. And notice the promise here, what Moses says in verse 6. 
He says, do all these things. This is what the Lord commanded you to do. You're going to do these things. That's the action. So that, here's the purpose, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. He's saying, you're going to obey God in this way. And the result's going to be his glory will appear. It's really incredible. And so they, they begin to follow God's prescriptions for them. They've already been called out of Egypt. They're already in relationship with him. And so now they're going to express their love for God and their dedication to God by obedience to his word. And the result of that is going to be deeper relationship with God. The result's going to be they're going to worship God together. Look with me at verse 8. So Aaron approached the altar and slaughtered the calf as a sin offering, purification offering, for himself. Aaron's sons brought the blood to him. He dipped his finger in the blood and applied it to the horns of the altar. He poured out the blood at the base of the altar. He burned the fat, the kidneys, and the fatty lobe of liver from the sin offering on the altar, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He burned the flesh and the hide outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering. Aaron's sons brought him the blood and he splattered it on all sides of the altar. They brought him the burnt offering piece by piece along with the head and he burned them on the altar. He washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Aaron presented the people's offering. You can see that those offerings, the first ones were for the priests and now for all the people together. Aaron presented the people's offering He took the male goat for the people's sin or purification offering, slaughtered it, and made a sin offering with it as he did before. He presented the burnt offering and sacrificed it according to the regulation. Next, he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burned it on the altar in addition to the morning burnt offering. Finally, he slaughtered the ox and the ram as the people's fellowship sacrifice. Aaron's sons brought him the blood and he splattered it on all sides of the altar. They also brought forth the fat portions from the ox and the ram, the fat tail, the fat surrounding the entrails, the kidneys, and the fatty lobe of liver, and placed these on the breasts. Aaron burned the fat portions on the altar. But he presented the breasts and the right thigh as a presentation offering or elevation offering, wave offering, before the Lord, as Moses had commanded. Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. He came down after sacrificing the purification offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering. And so this, is, this isn't new to us. We've seen all of these offerings before described to us. We see four of the five offerings that are prescribed carried out here. The only one that is missing is the compensation or guilt offering. And that's because it's only offered in the case of personal offense, when you've personally wronged someone and you need to compensate them for the loss. But we see all the other ones, and we see them in in an order that makes sense. So you have the the sin or the purification offering, wherein the lifeblood of the animal was pictured as both ransoming the offer, ransoming the sinner, and purifying them, washing them clean of their sins. Then you have the burnt offering, which expresses general atonement for sin and expresses worship for God. Then you have the grain offering, which says, thank you, God, I belong to you. Again, it it proclaims dedication to their king. And then lastly, you have the fellowship offering. 
you offer this offering and then uh, the Lord eats some and the people eat some. And it is a, a covenant meal which affirms and celebrates the relationship between God and his people. All of this goes on through the actions of the priests. The people can't just come to God and offer the sacrifices themselves. They need a mediator to interact with the Lord. The priests must offer the sacrifices. And so the the message is clear. We can't come to God on our own. A mediator is required. A mediator along with sacrifice is what allows God's people to worship God. I remember a few years ago now, uh, I went to China, and when I got off of the airplane, I, I searched for my friend who, who's pretty tall, I think he's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, um, and very white, uh, and he stuck out like a, like a sore thumb amongst all the Chinese who uh, he towered over. Uh, they always would think he was an NBA player, ask for his autograph, and he would oblige and pretend. Uh, but, but, but once I got off the plane and, and went to my friend Keith, I was entirely dependent on him in ways that I had not foreseen. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't know Mandarin. And so like to hail a cab or to order food or to interact with anybody, I had to go through Keith. Like even people would sometimes say, uh, Elliot was just a tiny little baby at the time. So they'd come up and say, you know, stuff in Mandarin. And I'd be like, what are they saying? What are they saying? And, and he would say, uh, he's like a porcelain doll. He's so cute. You know, and he, he would be translating for me. I couldn't interact without his help. You see, likewise, the people of Israel could not interact with God, they could not worship God without the help of a priest. The priest's role as a mediator is to take the people here and God here and bring them together. They required going through a priest. And friends, this is precisely what Jesus does for us. It's so neat how God teaches us about Jesus long before Jesus shows up on this earth. He teaches us that Jesus is going to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. Our sinless substitute who can wash away our sins by teaching us about all these offerings that we've read about. That Jesus is going to be the perfect sacrifice. And he also teaches us about Jesus by setting up the priesthood. Jesus is going to be the perfect high priest. He is the eternal high priest who brings us together with the God we were made for. It's only through Jesus that we are able to worship God. I love in, in Hebrews, we were talking about it in Sunday school this morning, uh, where the author tells us Jesus is better than the Old Testament high priest because he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for himself first. He's perfect. And he offers himself as a sacrifice in the place of his people. He atones for their sins once for all. I mean, this is, if you come to faith in Jesus, What's happening there is is Jesus is bringing you together with the God you were made for. 
so that you might know him and love him and worship him. And it's as if this great exchange takes place. You can think of it, if you want to think of it like clothing, that your sin uh, might be pictured as just a, a garment that is tattered and stained and soiled. And when you put your faith in Jesus and let go of your life, it is as if he, he takes that awful garment off of you and puts it on his own back and takes his perfect, spotless, righteous robe and covers you up with it. See, Jesus, if we're going to stick with the metaphor here, he, he dies in your clothing so that you can wear his clothing. It's a great exchange that happens on the cross. He takes your sin, when you put your faith in him, he takes your sin and gives to you his righteousness. So that when God looks at you or evaluates your life judicially, he declares you righteous for the sake of Christ. It is incredible. This is our great high priest. I mean, Jesus brings us together with God. And it's only through Jesus that we are able to worship God. There's, there's no other way for us to get into the presence of God except through faith in Christ. And Jesus tells us that, right? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter and Acts, there's no other name under heaven by which you can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who can bring us peace with God. It's only through faith in Him that we can worship in the way that we ought to. And that's what we were made for. brings us into the very presence of God. When we come to Jesus as God commands us, we receive the blessing of God. I love this, this picture that's given to us uh, in verse 22, that Aaron lifts his hands to bless the people. When you lift your hands in the Old Testament, we don't do this anymore, but this used to be how you prayed. It make, makes sense, right? If you were going to pray, you lifted your hands and, and you prayed. And this is sort of like a, it's a normal posture of prayer and blessing. And, and likely here when he blesses the people, it's kind of a, a pronouncement and a prayer together at once. And it's most likely that that famous one in Numbers, uh, God actually tells the people, uh, hey, when the priests come and the priests bless the people, this is what they should say. And so it's pretty likely that he said these words, Numbers 6, 24 through 26. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. It's an incredible blessing. And I love it in 23 what happens next. Moses and Aaron enter the tent of meeting. So they go into the palace. And when they come out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. I mean, what, what an awesome picture. The great prophet Moses and the great priest Aaron go into the holy place, and they come out. When they come out, they bring the blessing of God 
to the people. And God's glory appears. And I just, this is what Jesus does. Jesus, the true and better Moses, the great prophet. Jesus, the true and better Aaron, the great high priest, who is himself the great God, is one with God, Father and God the Holy Spirit, steps out and into our reality. He takes on flesh, becomes a man, so that he might dwell among us, bring God's presence and his blessing to us. And he does it by living a perfect life in our place and dying a substitutionary death. It is incredible that that God's glory is displayed perfectly in Christ. Hebrews tells us he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. And it's only through Jesus that we receive God's blessing. So that, that what, when we put our faith in Jesus, this is incredible, the, the passage in Numbers, the blessing in Numbers becomes true of us. The Lord does indeed bless us and protect us. His face is shining on us. He is gracious to us. He does look on us with favor. He does give us peace. He does all of these things through Christ, our burden bearer, our great high priest, our mediator. He brings us God's blessing and in Christ we see God's glory. Look how the people respond. Verse 24. Fire came from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell face down. This is an incredible spectacle. I mean, it says fire came from the Lord. And so I don't know if God's manifested his presence in the form of a glory cloud or, or what. But what's clear is that the fire comes from him and consumes what's left on the altar. He shows his glory, his visible presence to the people. And they respond appropriately. They shout, not for terror, but for joy. They're excited to see the glory of the Lord. This is a joyful shouting. And then they fall face down, which is a posture of of worship. It is a bowing down to show the superiority of their king. They're demonstrating that we, we are yours. You are holier than us. You, you are mighty. You, you are, are worthy. You are the king. They, they worship together in response to God showing up and displaying his glory. It really is an incredible thing. I mean, this is an incredible scene. God's glory shows up. I think sometimes we think about that and we go, I would love an experience like that. I would love to to know that, that, yes, I'm I'm one of God's people, put my faith in Jesus, and when I show up to worship, I'm going to receive the blessing of God. I'm going to, to see the glory of God. And friends, you do. 
You do. God's people gather together to worship God according to his word so that they can receive God's blessing and see God's glory. These are, these are a couple of the reasons why we gather. God commands us to gather and we come together to receive his blessing and to see his glory. Let me, let me read you this. We've said that Jesus is the, the perfect display of God's glory. But what I want you to see is that the church is also a display of of God's glory. And so that when we come together in obedience to the word of God, we see the glory of God in the life we enjoy together as we reflect his holy character in our love and care for one another, as we provoke one another towards good deeds and love. Let me read to you what one author wrote. Jesus is the clearest picture of the invisible God to us in the world. But Jesus is no longer visible at least not in the sense that you and I are. He's not open to inspection by the physical eye. And yet, one of the most common images for the local church is that of the body of Christ. It is in the church that God the Holy Spirit rules and reigns and is made visible in the lives of love that we live. I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us, right? You are the body of Christ. And also it tells us in verse 7 that to each member of the body of Christ has been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Well, what does that mean? It means that we've all been indwelt by the Spirit of God. We all have unique gifts of God and that those gifts show out of us so that God's glory can be seen at work in and among us. I don't know that, that we always think about this, God's glory shows up to the people of Israel in this, this flame of fire and they all stand around and, and, and they respond appropriately with worship and it's spectacular and amazing. But they, if they could look at what God was going to do in our day, their jaws would hit the floor in amazement. We go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. They have access to God all the time through Jesus Christ. They don't have to come to the temple to be in the presence of God? God's presence dwells in them? God's glory isn't, isn't visibly displayed in a flame of fire, as awesome as that is. It's displayed in their life together as a church? Are you kidding me? And yet, and yet we, we kind of scoff at this as if it's not a big deal. Oh, but friends, let us not treat God so casually. Let us not think so little of what God has given us. Let's not make the church this diminutive accessory to the Christian life. Let us recognize it for what God wants it to be. A vehicle through which His excellencies are proclaimed. The mechanism through which, Ephesians 3.10 tells us, his manifold wisdom is made known, not only to the world, but to angels and demons and unseen realms. Let us recognize that when we come here on a Sunday morning, we're coming to receive the blessing of hearing God's word. We're coming to receive blessings from God and to see his glory. 
When you come together on the Lord's Day, you're coming to something spectacular and supernatural. As you listen to, not all of us, but some of us, sing off-key and come together ordinarily and shake hands and say, how are you doing? That you are seeing a display of the glory of God. And when you look around this room, you see a bunch of sinners saved by grace. When you look around this room, you see people that have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. When you look around this room, you see people that were once dead that are now made alive in Christ. You look around and you see people that were once children of wrath that have been born again and are now called children of God. This is miraculous. This is spectacular. This is a display of God's glory. And so our last exhortation. When you come to this gathering, come expectantly. Come expecting to be blessed. Come expecting to see a display of God's glory. Come ready to shout for joy and to bow down in worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are good. And despite our failures and our faltering, you love us. We thank you that even though our sins are many, your mercy is evermore. We thank you that you love us steadfastly and unfailingly. We thank you that even though we are unlovely, you love us still. You see the depths of our hearts and you love us the same. God, we pray that you would cause us to think heavenly thoughts. That you would make us so heavenly minded that our lives on earth would do much good for the glory of your name and the greatness of your kingdom. God, we thank you that this good news of reconciliation with you is not for the rich and the famous. It's for those who are poor and needy, who recognize they need a Savior. Lord, we, we come with nothing in our hands, saying thank you. We belong to you. Lord, we praise you this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.